0: Hello, dear friends, and welcome to this new edition of Forum 2000 Online Chats. Today, we are with Mrs. Jana Gorovskaya. She is a senior research analyst at Freedom House, and she's been working in the transnational repression and migration portfolio. Specifically, she was part of the team that released early this year a report called Defending Democracy from Exile, where they have uh, exposed their findings and raised some recommendations regarding transnational repression. So thank you for being with us. And just to kick off, let's uh, talk about what is transnational repression, how does it uh, works, and, and how is it why is it an issue right now?
1: Great, thanks for having me. Um, Transnational repression, the way that we define it, uh, is a set of tactics that governments use to reach across borders in in order to silence dissent. And it can take the form of physical tactics. So these are assassinations, renditions, detentions, assaults, kidnappings. It can also take the form of non-physical or indirect tactics, so these are um, pressure on family members, this is harassment online, um, and so there's a wide universe of tactics, and really the purpose of it is to maintain an authoritarian regime by silencing those who would speak out against it, not only inside the regime's own borders, but increasingly outside of, um, outside of its borders, and so the work we do at Freedom House tracks this phenomenon. We've been doing this for about three years, we now have a data set that has 735 incidents that span from 2014 to the end of 2021. Um, you know, so these are all over the world. Uh, and these are only the physical incidents. So these are really just the kind of tip of the iceberg in terms of yeah. this um, phenomenon.
0: Yeah. No, I listening to it and the explanation, I think one starts to, in my case, coming from Venezuela to remember some episodes of not just people being harassed abroad, but also their families inside the country being also harassed as a way to make pressure on, on activists. So how, how can you share with us how does it look like from the side, from the outside of, uh, of the activists? Of how are they experiencing how it's more humane rather than the numbers and figures?
1: Well, so, you know, we I think people have heard about some of the biggest cases. So there was the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. There was the um, downing of the plane by Belarus last year to arrest uh, Roman Protasevich, who was on board. But there are hundreds of other incidents that people don't hear about partly because they happen in parts of the world where we don't have great media coverage, especially in English, but also because it has a silencing effect, right? So the purpose of this is to silence dissent, and in a lot of cases, it works. So it actually does quiet the person, especially um, when it comes to people's family members. And as part of this research, we actually spoke to dissidents and um, people living in exile in the United States. As part of our previous research, we spoke to people living in Europe. And so for this report, we looked at people living in the United States, and even in a country as secure as the United States people still feared the reach of authoritarian states and especially those people who had family and friends abroad and so for them yeah. you know it had a lot of impacts they stopped speaking to immediate family and friends. They no longer communicated because it put the people at risk. They didn't travel or only travel to a few places in the world because they were worried about being kidnapped. You know, It isolated them from their own um, diaspora communities inside the United States as other people feared being targeted because they were in contact with people who had been targeted. So the effects are really, really um, sort of serious and they, they ripple out through communities.
0: Okay, so uh, it's, I think it's important to clarify, it's not like we have perhaps seen on movies or series of these spying uh, activities uh, before, perhaps in the Cold War. Right now, it has a lot of the spying as well, but also have these more uh, targeted actions uh, against civilians at the end, not any part of uh, foreign governments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually one of the sort of struggles about, about responding to transnational repression for governments um, where people live in exile It's because it's not traditional spying. So, you know, we have anti-espionage laws. We have laws in place, but the people who are being targeted don't have access to any special government or military information or scientific information. And they're being targeted not because it would give some kind of advantage to the targeting state in the classic kind of Cold War espionage situation. They are being targeted because they're speaking out for fundamental human rights.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really worrying how is it working. And, and uh, rather than uh, obviously the out of censorship and the fear of the activists, is there any other w- challenge they're facing or some resilience strategy they have developed? I mean, is it, something happening in the side of the victims in this case of transnational repression? Is something going on in there?
1: Well, I think we have been really pleased to see a lot of different action uh, on this issue. So, from within activists themselves, first of all, although it does um, have a silencing effect, we did speak to a lot of people who uh, continue their activism in spite of being targeted. Um, a lot of their kind of mitigation measures involve things they can do online. So, uh, digital hygiene, you know, um, not sharing your location. Um, Not sharing information about your immediate family, um, being careful with your devices. Um, We're increasingly seeing uh, companies actually also offer protections to people. So um, enabling dual factor authentication for logging into your email or giving people kind of one click reporting mechanisms, um, you know, that um, combine all the kind of harassment they've received into a readout that then you can take to the to the police or the FBI. And increasingly, at least here in the United States, but also in Europe, governments are paying attention to this as well. So the FBI has actually done quite a bit of work reaching out to communities who have been targeted, including um, Iranians, Rwandans, um, you know, Uyghurs and others, and actually telling them that this is a crime. This is a crime that will be taken seriously. And this is something that you should report. So, you know, I think there is increasing awareness, which is leading to action, but people are still vulnerable. And often it feels like the person is alone against the power of a whole state.
0: Yeah. And again, and perhaps uh, having an introduction to your recommendations, I think uh, reading your your report, there are like two different uh, points of view. One is protecting these people uh, being targeted in host countries. But I think the other uh, point of view is how does world democracies can deter world autocracies to continue, uh, from continuing uh, doing this? So what are your insights from these two sides? Protecting uh, people being hosted in, in host countries, in democratic countries, most of the, the cases, and how can democracies deter uh, authoritarian regimes to continue doing this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, we focused on these two sides, as you clear, as you rightfully identify, because part of it is mitigating what's happening, but part of it is also ensuring accountability and actually preventing or deterring um, authoritarian states from pursuing these, these tactics. So I think, you know, at the kind of highest level, um, raising this issue in bilateral meetings or multilateral meetings, um, taking this issue to international organizations like Interpol, there's been a lot of action on Interpol. Interpol, Interpol reform, more transparency so that it can't just be continually abused by authoritarian states, right? So there's action there. Um, it's sort of you know in fits and starts, but there's something action at the UN at various working groups to actually identify that um, there is a transnational element when people are disappeared or arbitrarily detained. Um, you know, at the kind of country level, there are sanctions, visa bans. There was the Hishog- famously the Hashoki visa ban, which was announced um, after hashogi's murder that applies to, to um, officials who, who use transnational repression. Um, there have been sanctions. I think a couple of other steps that may not be as obvious, but we think are really important. Sure. Um, looking at diplomatic staff that is stationed in the country to make sure that they are not perpetrating transnational repression. So we know that certain countries, in fact, use their diplomatic missions to harass dissidents. And so countries that are admitting diplomats have a lot of control over that, right? They can, for diplomats that are already here, you can issue persona non grata designations. For diplomats that are incoming, you can actually um, refuse their diplomatic uh, visas, right? So not not give them accreditation. So there are things that you can do. Another very strong signal um, is uh, limiting security assistance and financial assistance to governments that engage in transnational repression, right? And actually saying, we are uh, freezing security assistance or putting security assistant, assistance under review because you engage not only in human rights violations at home, but in human rights violations abroad. And I think yeah. you know, this applies to countries like Egypt, like Rwanda, and you know, others.
0: Yeah. And listening to you, uh, I, I just realized that perhaps I could have been victim of, of this transnational repression oh, wow. here in Switzerland a couple of years ago in the middle of the uh, Universal Periodic Review. We were a mission of civil society organizations coming to Geneva to explain the human rights violations in Venezuela, and we were confronted a couple of times with uh, well, both Cuban and Venezuelan officials from their embassies here in Switzerland and, and confronting these delegations of civil society organizations and human rights defenders. But rather than my personal experience, I I would uh, put the the spotlight also in countries such as Switzerland, which are neutral in most of the conflicts in the world, could be also Austria or Finland or some other neutral countries. Uh, Have you looked about how does neutrality influences these both sides, protection and deterrence of, of transnational repression?
1: Well, we haven't looked at the issue of neutrality specifically, but what I would say is that for a lot of countries, you know, this is clearly for us, since we are an organization that works on human rights, this is a first and foremost a human rights issue. But for a lot of governments, this is also a national security issue. If you have agents of foreign states who are operating within your country and are seeking to harm people who live here, and in a lot of instances, these people are permanent residents, they may be even citizens, right? Um, these foreign agents are seeking to harm these people. And sometimes they go to really extreme lengths. For instance, um, there was a campaign in the United States against a person who was running for Congress. So who was going to be elected into US government, right? And so this is actually um, attacking democratic institutions in these countries. And some countries have actually begun viewing it that way. Sweden uh, to a certain extent views attacks against dissidents by foreign states as an actual threat to sort of Swedish democracy. So I think, you know, lots of governments, this is an issue for all governments. There's lots of different ways to look at it, um, you know, and it doesn't really matter how aligned you are sort of internationally. And I'll just say on on your experience, we looked at some of this um, at the UN as well. Um, There is uh, an effort by authoritarian states to kind of unite with like-minded governments to prevent um, dissidents and activists from speaking out or from even participating at various UN forums. And this is something that I think there's some attention to, but we really need to think about what these spaces are and what and how to protect these spaces to allow, um, you know, dissident voices and activists to participate in them.
0: Yeah, true. Uh, my second to last question, also because of my own experience and my fellow Venezuelan experience in Latin America. Now we have seen, uh, let's say, a wave of governments, uh, let's say, closer to the Venezuelan regime rather than the previous one, more uh, in the right wing. And there is some fear that because of the ideological links between these new governments in Latin America and the Venezuelan government, there could be more openness from these countries to uh, send back people to Venezuela or comply with some requests from from the Venezuelan regime. I've read in your report it's not only happening in Venezuela in many other countries. And uh, how would you or what would you advise? And what are your recommendations to, to uh, democratic society as a globally to address these kind of things and to protect these people that were before, let's say, fully protected by their host country. And now they are doubting if their host countries are continuing to protect them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that we talk about is um, ensuring and committing to the right to seek asylum. So, and especially to the right to seek asylum on the territory of the state. So increasingly over the last, I'd say 20 years or so, what we see is that um, various democratic governments are externalizing their borders. They are pushing people outside of their borders who are seeking asylum. Um, And this practice puts people in danger because they are they are less safe in uh, these third countries than they would be in the democratic country. And so um, we feel that one of the most important things that we could do to combat transnational repression is that governments need to commit to the the right to seek asylum. So that's one thing. Um, In terms of security and legal cooperation, it's important to keep in mind that authoritarian governments are really good and clever at finding ways around or to co-opt basically mechanisms that exist. Sometimes that's um, anti-terrorism uh, cooperation. Sometimes that's cooperation based on organized crime. Sometimes those are you know, extradition treaties. And so it's increasingly uh, an onus on host governments to examine extradition requests and to examine interventions in um, asylum proceedings and, and the degree to which they allow foreign governments to interfere or to have a say in those proceedings, and also, frankly, where they're getting information from, right? A lot of, a lot of the information that is being used in asylum cases, um, you know, needs to be vetted to make sure that it's actually correct and not coming from third-party sources that may um, not be telling the full story.
0: Perfect. Right. Well, just in one minute, if there is any recommendation we have missed in this interview, Please state them in some conclusion of this uh, pressing situation the world is living in and that has to be addressed as soon as possible.
1: Well, I think that um, one of the most important things is to raise that this as an issue and to raise this as an issue of human rights and to connect increasingly in the sort of globalized world that what happens within authoritarian states in their own territories is not limited to just, um, to just that territory. It extends far beyond. And also that the plight of people who are being targeted by authoritarian states is not just theirs alone. It endangers um, you know, the quality of our, all of our freedoms and rights and, and also threatens our institutions and threatens national security. So this is really an issue for all of us, whether or not we are living in exile and whether or not we ourselves come from an authoritarian state.
0: Great. Many thanks for the work you're doing, for raising uh, and speaking up for this, raising your voice for this, and, well, for being here. Many thanks, Jana Gorfshaya from Prima House, and thank you all for listening and continue uh, following the Forum 2000 online chats.
1: Thank you.